You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. <laughs> okay, so Nahum is a description of the downfall of the Assyrian Empire. Can you do the next slide, Cam? Which occurred shortly after Nahum was written. And it's a very little book, and it's full of imagery of the capital city of Nineveh falling by fire, by water, and by sword. And in 612 BC, that is exactly what happened. Do you know who sacked Nineveh? Like which people or nation? Babylon. Yeah. So Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it was the Babylonians, an alliance of Babylonians and Medes, who... Um, destroyed Nineveh and conquered it by the very means that Nahum actually described in his prophecy. Now, before this, the Assyrians had conquered, they had enslaved, they had deported all of the ten tribes of the northern tri tribe of uh, Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah, which is the other two tribes out of the twelve, had miraculously held on to some level of independence, but many of them likely knew a friend or relative that had been brutalized by the Assyrians or killed by them. The Assyrians were notorious for their cruelty. Now, there's no biography of Nahum. I googled it. There wasn't anything on there. But we do know as a prophet that he would have had, like the other prophets we've been reading, a radical encounter with God, which he was then told to record and share the prophetic vision he had, the symbolic vision with his fellow Hebrews. In this case, they think he was sharing with a group of Ju people from the tribe of Judah in Jerusalem. So that's what's happening here. The name Nahum means comfort or consolation. And that is meaningful because what Nahum saw was the Assyrians being taken down, taken out. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're talking about Nineveh here. Only two weeks ago, wasn't Jonah in Nineveh telling them to repent and they responded and experienced God, God's mercy? Well, think of Nahum as a sequel to Jonah, but the message is in reverse. Nahum prophesies over the same city 100 to 150 years after Jonah visits, and a few generations have passed, and the Ninevites have forgotten God, and they resume their merciless military power status. I think um, when I was researching this, it gave the example of between now and the Civil War, like that, that kind of timeline, 150 years, 200 years that things have changed. God hasn't changed, but things have changed in Nineveh. So that's the historical context. Now, big, big picture, which we're always trying to do when we look at the Bible, because it's one long story being written with lots of little stories inside it. Big picture, we're in the rising action of the great plot of what God is doing in the world. So in the beginning, we have God creating the world, and then he chose a nation to be his people, Israel, and he was going to be their God. And then fast forward thousands of years, and you have Jesus coming at the climax of the story, and he, of course, opens up that offer of relationship with God to everyone. Now the redemption is on a cosmic scale. But right now we're between those two events. So it's called often, if you know, again, in literature class or English class, there's five parts of a plot. We're in between that exposition, the beginning, and the climax of Jesus. We're in the conflict, it's often called, and rightly so. The minor prophets are telling us it's a sad story of Israel failing over and over again to be faithful to their covenant with God, and they are suffering the consequences. Now, remember, God had intended Israel to be a light to the people and the powers around them. There was this interdependent relationship between Israel and the foreigners who they lived outside of, in between, and with, and God would use 
the foreign nations as a means to draw Israel back to him when their light dimmed. I can't fully explain the methods of it or the details, but we do know that God and his sovereignty would use these nations to discipline Israel and to get their attention again and to make that light shine brighter. But God's plan was never to annihilate Israel. It was never to wipe them out. It was always to redeem them. And the point was, as he redeemed them, other people would be redeemed as well. They existed to bless other nations. So in Nahum, God is holding Assyria accountable because he has permitted their oppression and their chastisement of the, of the Hebrew people. That was a consequence that they were suffering. But he's putting a limit on, on their discipline of the Israelites. He's saying, enough, I'm stopping you there. And he's also holding them accountable for ignoring and squandering the mercy that he showed them before through Jonah. He did this for his own purposes and he permitted this. And this is the relationship between Nineveh and the Israelites. You see it two different ways with Jonah and then with Nahum. And ultimately what's happening is his judgments are proving to Israel and the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Babylonians, whoever they're in conflict with, that God keeps his promises and that God is just. These judgments are signals to people that it's time to turn if they don't know God yet, or return if they are already in that relationship with him. Okay, so this whole sermon series on the Minor Prophets is focused on God's justice. So what does Nahum teach us? Well, it's a difficult book. <laughs> it's essentially war poetry. Has anyone ever read war poetry? It's pretty intense. Um, and it can come across as one long taunt. If you read through um, all of the chapters, we're going to focus on the first one this morning. But it's really going into gory detail what's going to happen to the Ninevites. And it almost sounds as if it's glorifying vengeance and violence. So I want to share a sort of frame in reading it that I believe the Lord gave me when I was preparing the message. But I'm going to have you read that first chapter first. I want you to form your own impression and then I'm going to come back to it and share my perspective, and I'm going to read the passage out loud to you, and I'm just going to have you listen and respond. So what I want you to do now is on your phone, or even better, in a real book. Everybody has the Bible in blue in front of them, or in red in Spanish. Excuse me. Do you want me to tell you the page number, or do you want to try to find Nahum? I'll tell you the page number. 456. In this blue Bible, or if you look on the phone, you're looking for Nahum chapter 1. And it would be great if you sat with a friend or a family member or someone next to you and took a couple minutes to read through the first chapter of Nahum and then just share your initial thoughts about it. So it's 11.17, let's say, uh, in a couple of minutes, let's say at 11.20 if we can, we'll stop and we'll come back to it. So you're reading Nahum chapter 1, if you can, read next to a partner. And then when you're finished, just share with them, hey, what are my thoughts on this first chapter? What's going on? Does that make sense? All right, off you go. I'll check in with you at 11.20. Um, yeah, justice. Okay. All right. So before we go back and I read it out loud to you, I wanted to share uh, this perspective. So there's this phrase coined by a family therapist and parenting coach on Instagram. Could you do the slide, Cam? Her name is Dr. Becky. Has anyone heard of her? She has over a million followers. Okay. So... The phrase is, uh, two things are true. Could everybody say that? Two things are true. Okay, and you're, you're meant to use it as a form of validation for you and your child when there's a clash between a decision that you make and your child's feelings. 
Okay, so let me give you an example. I tell Killian it's time to get out of the bath, and Killian starts screaming and says, no, it's not time. I'm speaking from experience. So I would say to Killian in that moment, two things are true, Killian. It's time to get out of the bath, and you want to stay in the bath. Or it's time to get out of the bath, Killian, and you're feeling upset about it. So what Dr. Becky is trying to say is that two separate realities can coexist. One doesn't have to overrule the other. There is space for both. So that concept immediately came to mind when I was reading and studying Nahum. And then the Lord led me to a verse in Romans. Next slide, Cam. And in that verse, it says, Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Or in some translations, it says, Consider, therefore, the kindness and the severity of God. So Paul, in that passage, is reminding the Gentiles, this is post-Jesus, to be careful and, and sober about their gift of faith in Christ and not to be smug with the, with the Jews about it because the Jews had a different story of how they got to that point. So God's justice in Nahum, I believe, this morning is that kind of two things are true kind of situation. And that's where I felt he wanted the emphasis today. So now I'm going to read Nahum 1 to you out loud. And what I want you to do is simply close your eyes if that's okay. And I want you to just sit under the language. And I'm going to pause throughout, and I'm going to ask you to identify which truth of God's character you're hearing. Is it the kindness, or is it the sternness? And I'm going to pray before we read it. We are still God, and we want to know that you are God. I give you this time, Lord, to speak through Nahum. Bring clarity, Lord. Amen. All right, here we go. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. Is that kindness or sternness? The Lord is slow to get angry. Kindness? Kindness or sternness? Thank you. But his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. What are you hearing? Kindness or sternness? Kindness. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. His enemies, tangled like thorn bushes and staggering like drunks, will be burned up like dry stubble in a field. Who is this wicked counselor of yours who plots evil against the Lord? Kindness or sternness? Mm -hmm. This is what the Lord says. Though the Assyrians have many allies, they will be destroyed and they will disappear. Oh, my people, I have punished you before, but I will not punish you again. Nor, now I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear off the chains of Assyrian oppression. 
kindness. And this is what the Lord says concerning the Assyrians in Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols in your temples of your gods. I am preparing a grave for you because you are despicable. Sternness. Look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all your vows. Kindness. Last verse. For your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed. Sternness. Okay, you can open your eyes if you've not already. So as we come into land here, two things are true. God's justice is what compels him to orchestrate both the downfall and the deliverance of humanity, depending on where they stand with him. And there are consequences for being an opponent of God. And his justice is what moves him to relieve oppression from people and to deal with sin and the effects of sin. So I want to zoom in before ministry time on that second to last verse. And here's the picture I want to stay with us. It's the backdrop of God dealing forcefully with the schemes, chains, idols, yokes, plots, temples, alliances, sin and the effects of sin that have made him and men enemies. And then cutting through that devastation to the foreground is this precious, precious announcement. Look, turn your eyes away. A messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill your vows. So even as God's people are experiencing his judgment fall, rightly so, on their heads, and then they're watching it fall on the heads of the Assyrians, that offer of mercy stands. That promise of restoration. And who does that remind you of, that messenger? Who might that be... (laughs) Who might that be indicating? Jesus Christ. Right. It is good to think clearly about the character of God and not to neglect the full revelation of who he is. And I've had this experience that I can tend to emphasize one side of him or the other. And I'll be honest with you, when I was growing up, it was very much like God is severe and he's judge. And I lived under a lot of condemnation, which led to shame, which led to having a double life, which led to miserable, miserableness. But if we don't understand that those two things are true, what might happen? Well, we might start to fault God or criticize him, or we might misinterpret these judgments, Right? Or we might trivialize his compassion or feel entitled to it. Our faith could just be reduced to mere traditions or morals or doctrine rather than being this continual, be still and know that I am God. Experience me in my fullness and in my power. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And while we're living on the other side of Jesus, we have that message of peace, right? I felt this morning like the Lord wanted to use this passage to stir a healthy fear of the Lord. 
it's possible to be safely in awe of God. And what do I mean by that? It's possible to be fully aware of God's justice and the consequences for sin. And the fact that he cannot ignore sin will also be fully aware that we are secure in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for sin and we are restored from the effects of those sin in Jesus Christ. These two things are true. And when the condemnation of God, that is a real prospect, has been removed from the situation, all you're left with is this humble, awed, trembling response to God's greatness. And as we are praying in the prayer room this morning, I shared with the team that I felt the Lord wanted to stir up this kind of response to him and awareness of who he is through Nahum. And there was this sense that there's a difference between being convicted and being condemned. And how do you know the difference? Well, conviction leads to repentance, which leads to life and freedom and peace. Condemnation leads to shame and guilt and moving yourself further away from God. So I want you to hear me this morning, friends. It is the conviction of God that we are responding to that leads us to turning back to him. And Jim had a beautiful picture um, this morning. He said, I saw that game in a carnival. Have you ever gone to a carnival or a fair and played that game where you shoot the little targets as they move back and forth? Anybody ever done that? And there was this sense that the Holy Spirit would just be able to target some things this morning, and then the response would be just a turning back to him. Okay. Could I call Dan back up here? Where'd he go? He's making bacon. That is incredible. All right. I'm going to have Dan come up. We're going to move into ministry time now. And I think it would be good for us to stand, if that's okay. Let's, let's respond to what we just read. Let's respond to these two things are true about God. And I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And our prayer team could just be ready to move around the room if you see an opportunity. Um, so we're standing now, but if you feel moved to do something else, you want to kneel, you want to lie down, if you want to change your physical posture in a way that feels right in that moment, please feel free to do that. I'm having us stand now just to kind of activate us physically and to respond So we saw the kindness of God in Nahum, but we also saw the greatness of God and the justice of God. And I want us to lean into that tension this morning, that this is our God, 
orchestrates the downfall of the Assyrians while extending a hand to his people, the Israelites. And we landed on that verse that was a picture of Jesus because it is the kindness of God that causes you to turn back to him. And that is the invitation this morning to turn back to God, to be right with God. And it is the blood of Jesus who took the judgment for us that makes it possible for us to do that. So Holy Spirit, would you come and fill this room? We had a picture of a shower of rain, a gentle warm shower of rain falling down on people, cleansing them, bringing that conviction, the gentle, pure conviction of the Holy Spirit down, falling on you. And Holy Spirit, would you come and help people identify where there is the opportunity and the invitation to be right with you and to turn back to you.